Ecclesiastes chapter nine, where we left off, picking up in verse 11, the preacher says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time. And chance happened to them all, for man also does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. This wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it. And a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that same poor man. Then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. Over and over again, I remind you at the beginning of our studies in the book of Ecclesiastes that this book contains Solomon's thoughts on the meaning of life. The book isn't simply musings on the meanings of life. It's a calculated and careful inquiry into the meaning of life. And the book begins with the premise that there doesn't appear to be purpose in anything. We found that in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, or a point to anything in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The preacher pounds the reader with his persistent search and his pessimistic summary in chapter 1, verses 12, all the way to chapter 10, verse 20. He speaks of the barrenness of life in chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. The bitterness of life in chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. The boredom of life, chapter 2, verses 20 through 26. And so with themes like barren, bitter, boring, you want to turn the page and go, let's read something else. What did Solomon see? Time without eternity, a new leaf without a new life, mortality without immortality, might without right, plenty without peace, prosperity without posterity, sovereignty without sagacity, religion without reality, wealth without health, treasure without pleasure. He pounds and promotes and wonders whether or not life is worth living in the the preacher expresses frustration and bitterness and cynicism. And in chapter 8, the preacher examines the fiction of being great, the folly of being godless, the fantasy of being good, the flaws in being gifted. And now the preacher tells us about man's brief mortality, man's bitter moments, man's bad memory. You know, it reminds me 
that someone once summed up life in three words. Hurry. Worry. Bury. You, you want to get it over with. <laughs> Sometimes we think that life is what happens to us while we're making other plans. But part of the point of the passage is to get you to ask a much more important question. And that is, what about my life? And I want you to pause for just a moment and I want you to ask that question of yourself. I want you to ask yourself the question, how would I characterize my life? What is happening in my life right now? Are you making other plans? Do you find yourself in a situation where you feel like you're on track or off task or on target or on a treadmill? Are you looking for a place to jump on or are you looking for a place to jump off? Do you ever feel like a rat in a proverbial maze looking for the cheese at the end of the tunnel and Solomon invites you to pause and look at your life and ask the question in the most honest way that you know how. Someone has said that we view life from different perspectives. Let me ask you a question. Would you say that you're an optimist or a pessimist or suspicious or resigned? Someone has said that pessimism is an investment in nothing. And optimism is an investment in hope. Or as my granny used to say, when you travel through life, whatever your goal, keep your eye on the donut and not on the hole. She was an optimist. But she was also a realist. And in this brief section, we're given a glimpse into the preacher's heart and into the preacher's observations. He notices that human ability doesn't always guarantee true success in verses 11 and 12. He then gives us a parable about a city under siege in verses 13 through 15. In short, the preacher reminds us that strength is, is more impressive but less effective than wisdom in verse 16. The preacher also observes that wisdom is never popular, rarely obeyed, usually forgotten in verse 16. And then the preacher also observes that wisdom is often has the ability or actually the way that I would put it is human leaders apart from God's wisdom often have the ability to shout louder than the wise person who speaks softly. The world shouts loudly and convincingly of its plans for our lives, and we can see that the vast majority of people buy into the voices that shout to us about how we should live our lives or the meaning of life. Even though the world shouts louder, the preacher is basically saying something important, that wisdom is preferred, that the weapons of war are no match for real wisdom, but sinful human beings don't always look for peaceful ways to resolve conflict. And so the preacher 
writes in verse 11. I returned and saw under the sun. Where has he returned from a funeral? He's returned from the funeral. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happen to them all. Here's what's happening. Solomon is anticipating a question because at the opening part of the chapter, remember what he said. Death is unavoidable. And so he gets us to the conclusion, okay, if death is unavoidable, then the smartest thing that we can possibly do is live our lives based on our talents and gifts. When death comes, at least we'll have the satisfaction of knowing that we lived a good life. But Solomon says, wait, wait, don't be so sure. You can't guarantee what's going to happen in life because life is unpredictable. So point number one. Death is unavoidable. Point number two, life is unpredictable. What does that mean? What's the implications of that? Solomon begins to suggest that abilities are no guarantee of success. Just because you're the fastest, just because you're the strongest, just because you're the wisest, just because you're the richest. Does that mean everything's going to work out for you? That's part of the point that he's making. Life sometimes includes harsh realities. I saw a special on PBS last night about sexual slave trafficking. And with the collapse of the former Soviet Union came this vacuum where young women are solicited. And it sometimes starts off innocently enough. Hey, and if you're living in a world where there's massive unemployment and the, and, and the need to work and somebody puts an ad and says, we're looking for waitresses, we're looking for factory workers, we're looking for people. And all of a sudden they find themselves smuggled from the former Soviet Union across the ocean into Turkey. And then they're sold into the slave market, the sexual slave market. Some girls go knowingly, others naively, but they wind up in a nightmare and they begin to understand that they live in a world of injustice and death and oppression. And you don't have to live very long to look around and say, hey, you know what? I was taught that if I did everything right, that if I worked my hardest and if I did my best, if I stayed in school, if I stayed drug free, if I did this and I did that, then I had at least some sort of reasonable expectation that I would have a good life. That's part of the point that is being made in the here and the now as he's beginning this this portion of his inquiry into the search for the meaning of life. And remember that part of the meaning of life that you've been taught from a very early time is go to school, stay in school, do your best, whatever you do, do your best, commit the rest. But but Solomon and that's that's supposed to be realism. But Solomon says, look, I return and I, I and I noticed something. That it's possible for you to be the fastest person in the race, but you can stumble and fall. 
You might be the fastest swimmer in the world. I remember in the 2004 um, trials, the Australian swimmer was getting ready. And before the, the gun went off, he fell into the pool and he was disqualified. And everybody in Australia wept. He had trained his whole life. He had devoted himself to that golden moment. And now the moment was gone. Clearly, the races often goes to the swift. The battle often goes to the strong. The bread to the wise. The richest to people of understanding. But sometimes that's not the way it works. And only the Lord can control Time and chance. Look at the, the, the at the end of the verse where it says, but time and chance happen to them all. Clearly, the preacher has said to everything, there's a, a season and to every purpose under heaven. God has ordained a time and a purpose in chapter eight, verse six. There's he's made all things beautiful in its time in chapter three, verse 11. And so here, when the preacher's talking about time and chance, he doesn't mean gambling. He's not talking about luck. Christians don't believe in luck. We believe that luck is what a fool calls it when God gives them a break. Over and over again, he's reminded us that there is a God. This God has ordained time and purpose and beauty. Christians believe that God is orchestrating and ordering their life. Sometimes Christians fall into the trap. They say, good luck. One comedian said, I'm a great believer in luck. I find the harder I work, the more I have of it. But guess what? We trust the Lord. We trust the Lord to lead us and guide us and make decisions. And I think that that's part of the meaning of chapter 9, verse 11, when it says, but time and chance happen to them all. But the idea then will become time and chance belong to the Lord. That he orchestrates and orders all things. We live in a world where people make a very lucrative career. Building on the fear and insecurity and doubt and depression of people. When you were in school, do you remember having a career day? Did anyone ever ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Did any of you say, I want to be a motivational speaker? I'll bet you not a single one of you did. Hey, I think I'm going to grow up and become a motivational speaker. When I was just out of college and I was working one of my first jobs, my boss took me to go see Zig Ziglar, who's a motivational speaker. And he, he really is fun to listen to. He began his speech. He said, a lot of people claim to be from Mississippi, but I really am. As if being from Mississippi could be the most exciting thing that could ever happen to you. But I've been to Mississippi and I knew that that wasn't true. And he said, tell me what you think you need in order to be successful. And people started, you know, a good job, great income. And I shouted out, a full head of hair. Because my, my boss was bald. It was the wrong thing to shout out, by the way. There are plenty of motivational speakers and life coaches 
And they'll gladly tell you how to live, how to succeed, how to get ahead, how to be stronger, how to live longer. I get so frustrated on the radio when I hear people talking about no snoring, hair growing, fat burning, debt reduction. And I just think, who's your audience? But the preacher reminds us that speed and strength and wisdom and riches and skill are no guarantee of success. That's the point. Death plays to win. And life is sometimes unfair. J. Robert Oppenheimer said, the optimist thinks that this is the best of all possible worlds and the pessimist knows that it is. A pessimist is what an optimist calls a realist. The optimist already sees the scar over the wound and the pessimist still sees the wound beneath the scar. There's an extreme optimism that journeys into the land of fantasy. See, even if if, if you say, am I an optimist or am I a, a pessimist? Am I a realist? Am I a fatalist? There is a kind of an optimism that is not rooted in reality where life is observed and, and people don't make good choices based on reality. You see, the, 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 the downside of optimism is that the dark side is denied. And so some people begin to live on dreams. And hopes that will never come true. And the danger and the limit of optimism is this dramatic lack of reality. And so even here, Solomon can't rightly be called an optimist. But the opposite of optimism is pessimism. And the pessimist views life in dark, grim, and gloomy terms. The side effects of pessimism include a profound lack of joy and humor. And so when people say, well, you know, I want to be optimistic, but I also want to be realistic. But if I become too realistic, I might become pessimistic and there's no joy and there's no humor. Pessimism has a kissing cousin called suspicion. Do you know what the difference between suspicion and pessimism is? Suspicion digs the trench a little bit deeper. Suspicion's main ingredient is no ingredient at all. In other words, in order to become a convinced, suspicious person, trust has to be depleted. Let's say you start off life trusting people, trusting your mother, trusting your father, trusting people. You trust them and then the trust is eroded and then the trust is depleted and then the trust is barely there and then the trust is gone. But when trust is gone, not everything is gone. When trust is gone, suspicion is present. And suspicion 
basically sees only the cheaters and only the liars and only the crooks and only the perverts in life and assumes that everyone falls into one of those categories. And that's what I see all the time when I'm dealing with police officers and law enforcement officials who look at the worst side or they see people in the worst moment of their life. And they become suspicious. And they trust few people. The fatalist sees life as a fixed game. We've talked about that early on in the chapter. You are either saved or condemned because you are always saved or condemned. The fatalist basically sees that there's no control whatsoever or perhaps even the grip of the most determined person is at best a fiction, a myth. A fantasy and the most that you can hope for is that death will eventually come. The fatalist is the person who thinks that hope is a useless and pointless concept. So if optimism and pessimism and fatalism and suspicion don't work, What will? In verse 12, look what it says. For man also does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. Now, I want you to understand what the preacher is saying. Remember? Death is certain. Life is filled with uncertainty. So what are the conclusions he begins to draw? Well, wait a minute. Abilities are no guarantee of success. Opportunities are no guarantee of success. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Because he's looking for the meaning of life and he's looking for the the thing that will make you whole and well and satisfied. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, if I just had a certain ability, then I would be an enormous success. Or if I were just given the right opportunity. Then my life would have meaning and purpose and direction. But the preacher says the seasons of life bring uncertainty. Look again at verse 12. For a man also does not know his time. There's uncertainty. There's an inescapability. Look what it says. A cruel net like birds caught in a snare. Life is also abrupt. Look what it says. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. Uncertainty inescapable, abrupt. What does that mean, by the way? Look again at the text. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time. What does that mean? What does it mean to be snared in an evil time? It may be a reference to the fact that every person who is born will ultimately die. 
It may mean that. It may mean something else. It may mean that the evil time are all of the weird and wicked things that happen in the course of life. See, this is what's wonderful about being a baby. When you're a baby, you eat and you drink and you play and everybody exists to make you happy. And I know what you're thinking. Those are the good old days. Those are the good days. I eat, I drink, I live. But then along comes life. So the sons of men are a specific reference to human beings. And there are weird and there are wicked things that happen throughout the course of life. And Solomon, the preacher, looks around and he says, abilities are no guarantee of success. Opportunities are no guarantee of success. Weird and wicked things happen. But let me ask you a question. Do people knowingly build their houses on a fault line knowing the earthquake's going to come? Would you build a house on the San Andreas Fault if you knew for certain on September 6, 2012, a massive earthquake is going to come and shake California into the Pacific Ocean? Would you go, hey, well, I'm going to take my life savings and I'm going to build a house on a fault line. Does that make sense to you? Do they knowingly do that? But by the way, do people build their houses on sand? And do they build their houses on cliffs? And do they build their lives around certain circumstances that don't seem to make sense? You build your dream beach house and then comes a tsunami. You build your farmhouse and then comes a tornado. You build at a little bit below sea level and a hurricane comes. And your house is gone. And the rental property that you bought is gone. And everything that you worked for is gone. And by the way, each and every one of those examples are people I know. I know people who built their homes on a, on a, on a, on a fault and their house was shaken. I know people who built their houses near the beach and the tsunami came and, and the farmhouse and the tornado came. And in New Orleans, where I'm from, and we built our house and the hurricane came. And it filled my father's house to 16 feet in a two-story home. And at the age of 68, having worked his whole life and paid cash for his house and made all of his investments, then it was all of a sudden gone. And so... The preacher continues thinking it through. That the best man isn't always remembered. In verse 13, he says, this wisdom I have also seen under the sun. Remember, this is the place from human perspective uh, as in human observation. This wisdom I have also seen under the sun and it seemed great to me. Notice what the preacher does. He says, I have also seen 
under the sun. This becomes important for you because what the preacher is basically saying is I have observed this and I saw it with my own two eyes. This may be one of the reasons that the upcoming illustration isn't simply a parable, but perhaps an actual event. But if it is a parable, remember what a parable is. It's an earthly story that represents some sort of wisdom or heavenly goal. And he talks about a small defenseless city facing an attack from a great king. The time is limited. Death is sure. Escape impossible. In this horrible situation, a poor but wise man finds the solution to the problem through wisdom. But after the catastrophe passes, so is the memory of the poor man. There seems to be some debate whether the city heeded the wise man's counsel or not. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. In verse 14, it says there was a little city with a few men in it. And a great king came against it and besieged it and built great snares around it. Now, I want you to see the drama and the contrast. It's a little city. It's a great thing, or king. In other words, here you have what seems like someone who has wealth and prestige and power. And he comes against a little city. It's an insignificant city. Now, this becomes important in the story in and of itself. Why is it that people who have everything want more, especially when it's yours. And in the Old Testament, remember, one of the most famous stories of all was a wise man came to David and he said, there once was a, a man who had a little lamb. And he treated it like his own family and his own pet. And a rich man came, even though he had Flocks and herds and travelers came from a far country and he went next door and he took the poor man's one and only lamb and he cut its throat to feed his guests. And David said, that man should die. And Nathan said, you're that man. And he was exposed. Because he had taken another man's wife, he had everything that he could possibly want, and yet he decided that he wanted more. He presents a parable. This time, it, 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 it seems that there, there might be some basis. Obviously, throughout history, stories abound of people being saved by wisdom. I think of Archimedes saving Syracuse from the Romans by sinking their ships, but that takes place some... 700 years after, or excuse me, 700 years after Solomon wrote this story. But in verse 15, it says, now there was found in it a poor wise man and by his wisdom, he delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that same poor man. The Hebrew verb, by the way, allows for a, the, the reading. It could it could read. Now there was found in a in it a poor man and by his wisdom According to the verb conjugation, it could say he could have delivered the city. The implication being, if you're reading the text, does this mean 
there was an opportunity for the wisdom to be exercised and the city to be delivered, but no one would listen to him. Is that the meaning? Could be. It could mean that they heeded the warning and were in fact delivered. And then they just simply forgot. By the way, how long does the public's gratitude last? Ask any police officer, they'll tell you. Thank you for saving my life. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then somehow they forget why you're there. They forget why you came. They forget about the ambulance driver. They forget about the firefighter. They forget about the police officer. People are, are, are grateful for a moment. And in verse 16, he says, then I said, this is Solomon again, the preacher. Wisdom is, is better than strength. Nevertheless, a poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Clearly, wisdom can avert a catastrophe, but wise words go unheeded. Is it possible for you to say something that is truly, truly correct? And people go, I don't care. You might be a mother talking to your children. And you know what? It's probably a good idea for you to do this. Avoid that. Do this. Do that. Avoid this. Avoid that. The strength probably refers to physical strength or a military advantage. Now, a strong military is important. But a wise military is even more important. And so he says, wisdom is better than strength. But then he says in verse 17, words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. No one knows more about wisdom than Solomon. Remember, the Bible characterizes him as the wisest person who has ever lived. He is wise. You'll remember that that God is so impressed with Solomon that he says, look, I'm going to give you whatever it is that you want. And he could have asked for anything for riches, for long life, for the death of his enemies. But he says, make me wise. And God made him wise. But even the wisest person in the whole wide world realize that wisdom has weakness and there's vulnerability. What is the weakness of wisdom and what is the vulnerability of wisdom? The ruler isn't simply the king. It could be anyone who happens to be in, in, in charge. And so the shout is the shrill sounds of the self-assured person. Wisdom doesn't always win. Sometimes it's the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. And the person who shouts the loudest or pushes the hardest isn't always the wisest person. And so Solomon understands something. No matter how wise you are, good advice can go unheeded. Someone could say something to you, and no matter how wise the sentence is, you can say, I don't believe it, I don't want it, I don't accept it. You know, it's the wisest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. You are a sinner in need of a savior. 
Now, I can do several things with that information. No, I'm not. I'm not as bad as Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm not a serial killer. Yeah, I may not be as good as Mother Teresa, but I'm not as bad as Jeffrey Dahmer. Isn't that funny how when we compare ourselves, we don't compare ourselves by the best person we've ever thought of. We, we compare ourselves by the worst person. Do you remember that guy that, that Anthony Hopkins played? You know, that Hannibal Lecter guy? <laughs> I'm not that. I don't, I don't like eat people with fava beans, you know. I'm... We, we compare ourselves with the worst person that we could possibly imagine. And he understands something. He says in verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. What is the vulnerability of wisdom? What is the weakness of wisdom? Number one, it can go unheeded. And by the way, no matter how good you are, no matter how well you've done, all you have to do is one thing wrong one time and all of the good things that you've done seems to somehow become nothing. Have you ever been pulled over by a police officer? Why did you do you know why I pulled you over? Sir, you, you ran that stop sign. But I stopped at a thousand stop signs before that one. This is the very first one I ran. By the way, do you get credit for the thousand stop signs that you stopped at? No. Does it take only one red light or one stop sign to cost you a ticket? Have you ever heard a husband say, Well, I was faithful for nine years in a row. Do you think the wife likes to hear that? Do you think the wife goes, oh, congratulations. You see, this is the point. One sinner, one loud ruler destroys much good. That's the moral overtones. The wise man is trained, conditioned. The wise person, the wise man or woman is trained to judge right from wrong and good from evil. And wisdom is valuable. But wisdom is vulnerable. Wisdom is valuable. And wisdom is vulnerable. This from the wisest person who has ever lived. Wars could be avoided if people lived wisely. But it only takes one little folly to destroy the fruits of wisdom. When I was a kid growing up, Michael Jackson used to sing a song. One bad apple don't spoil a whole bunch, girl. And my grandma said, yes, it does. If you put one bad apple into a barrel, it's going to corrupt the whole barrel. You know, it's romantic to think that one bad apple don't spoil the whole bunch, girl. But isn't it funny how one sin, one transgression, one betrayal, how many sins and how many transgressions does it take to destroy a nation or to dissolve a community or to destroy a marriage or to divide a church? 
Wisdom is valuable. But wisdom is vulnerable. You see, even the smallest sin is applauded and rewarded by Satan. Solomon wrote about it and he said, and he says it in the next chapter. We're not going to go into depth in it. I'm just going to bring it to your attention. We're going to talk about it the next time. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is in his right hand, but a fool's heart is in his left. No political pun intended. The point? The point is, it's way easier to make something stink than to make something fragrant. Haven't you noticed it's a lot easier to sweat than it is to shower and put on deodorant? Ask anyone who's in the eighth grade. Adam's sin brought much harm. Adam's sin destroyed much that was good. The wise person is trained and conditioned to judge. Look what it says. Look what it says at the end. But one sinner destroys much good. Have you ever wondered what a raw deal it was that when Adam and Eve sinned, that billions and billions of people suffered the consequences? What a raw deal. One person does one thing wrong and we all suffer. I was the oldest of five. When one of us got in trouble, if, look, my, my father didn't teach me a lot of lessons in life, but he taught me two things. Keep your mouth shut and never rat out your friends. I know it's not in the Bible, but it makes pretty good sense. Keep your mouth shut. Don't rat out your friends. And so... You keep your mouth shut. And your mom comes in and says, unless you tell me who did this, all of you get spanked. And you see the weakest link starting to tremble. Lips starting to quiver. Resolve starting to go down the tubes. Achan's sin brought defeat for the armies of Joshua in Joshua chapter 7. David's sin brought evil on his household and Israel, according to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 24. David's sin killed a man and destroyed a young child's life and created an environment of rebellion and then a civil war. And then 50,000 more people were killed. It seems like a raw deal that Adam's sin could destroy so much. But Paul writes in the book of Romans, just like sin entered through one man, Adam, righteousness came from one man's sacrifice. And this is the glorious good news. The glorious good news is because of one person, everybody can be saved. Because one person lived a righteous life, because one person did what was right, because one person honored God faithfully, because one person decided to, to live their lives sacrificially before the Lord and submitted himself to a sacrificial death and then rose from the dead. You can all receive forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to the Father. And since... One sinner destroys much good. What do we take from this passage? 
Now think about the passage. I want you to think about what you just read. The preacher says death is unavoidable. Life is unpredictable. Sin brings judgment. So what's the course of action? The course of action is we repent of our sin and unbelief. We turn to Jesus. We entrust ourselves to God in the sacrificial death of Jesus because he's the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. We don't depend on luck. We don't make our own luck. What we do is we trust a loving father. We trust his promise. We trust his word. We walk in his will. We walk by faith and we refuse to give in to the last great enemy. Death. And the reason why we refuse to give in to the last great enemy is because Jesus conquered death. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus says, Fear not, I'm the first and the last. I'm he that lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead. And so guess what? Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead. We don't look at life through the jaded, cynical eyes of the pessimist. We don't live in a fantasy world of the hyper-optimist or the cynic. We don't have to cry vanity of vanities, emptiness, meaninglessness, worthlessness, pointlessness. We can say like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, you be steadfast, you be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The point. Your life has meaning and your life matters. In Christ. Remember at the very beginning of the passage in chapter 9 when he's talking about whatever you do. Look at verse 10 again. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. Life is worth living. The granddaughter of famed conductor Arturo Toscanini was interviewed Years ago, and she was asked to identify the most important thing about her grandfather's life. And her response was surprising. She said, whatever he was doing at the moment. And I thought, what? She went on to add, she said, whether my grandfather was conducting a symphony or whether he was peeling an orange or whether he was playing with me, that was the most important thing that he could possibly do. Isn't that good? I think it captures the meaning of the whole passage. You know, not all of us can be a champion swimmer or a great basketball player or a world-class conductor. But whatever we find our hands to do, we can do it with all of our might because we serve the Lord. And I want you to think about this just for a moment, because the moment you decide that you are doing something for his sake... For Christ's sake, for the Lord's sake, those three words, for his sake, 
everything becomes a big deal. When you wash dishes for his sake, when you love your children for his sake, when you show up to work for his sake, when you go to school for his sake, when you take the test for his sake, all of a sudden, guess what? Everything changes. You see, this is what's interesting to me, not only about his observations, but what the Bible has to say as a whole. Your life becomes meaningful and memorable. The moment you whisper, I'm doing this for you, Jesus. I'm doing this for you, Jesus. We will be exposed to a few more cynical notions before we come to the end of this book. But that's why I have to keep constantly bringing you back. There's other pages in the Bible. There's other revelation that's been given. And his pessimism and his cynicism and his observations are important to you and to me if you're going to battle Unrealistic optimism, joyless pessimism, foolish fatalism, and come up with a way of looking at your life and looking at this world from God's perspective. There's so much more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time of study. But more than that, Lord, we thank you for Jesus Lord, we thank you that the most important thing that we could possibly do is to glorify God. The most important thing that we could possibly do is to purpose in our heart to turn from our sin and our unbelief. The most important thing that we could possibly do is to honor God and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, you've given us a wonderful permission That whatever we do, whether we eat or whether we drink, whatever we do, we can do it to the glory of God for the sake of our master. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit. Empower us by your love. And we commit these things to you in Jesus name. Amen. Let's.